I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. The Apostles' Creed includes the line, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. What happens in the future? Maybe not tomorrow, but on the distant horizon and on the other side of death. And what does it have to do with right now? And I'm going to begin tonight by telling you guys uh, about an activity in which I've been engaged for the last few years that I highly recommend to you and your friends if you happen to enjoy music. It's called Discography Club. So you get some friends in a group text thread, and then together, you know, you pick a band or an artist with whom not all of you are super familiar. And then beginning with the debut album, you listen to their entire discography and you send ratings and reactions to the thread as you make your way through. Uh, The conversation could look something like this. Um, This is us trying to figure out who to listen to next. Uh, Levi voted for Slayer. Mike Jensen voted for Gorillaz or Deftones, and then someone agreed with him. And Michael Dumont, our friend, said anything but Blink-182. And then Patrick said, I vote Slater. Now, that's a typo for those of you in the know. He meant to say Slayer, but then Levi picked up on that typo, and there's a photo of A.C. Slater from Saved by the Bell. Or maybe the conversation will look like this. Uh, This is us trudging our way through the Kiss discography. So Patrick's given two out of five to Hot in the Shade, and uh, Mike's given three out of five to Asylum, which is really high (laughs) for the Kiss discography. And then Mike says, you know, if they would stop doing the silly songs, then I think it would be even better. But I guess that's what Kiss is. And I said, if you take away the silly songs, you'd be left with an EP. Or the conversation might sound something like this. Look at everybody so excited about an album called Rain and Blood. Just 29 minutes of the purest thrash, somebody says. And then uh, Levi says, no other thoughts, Patrick. Just five out of five. And his other thoughts are, I loved it. That was it. So the point is, you get to enjoy this music together or not enjoy it together. It's really like a band of brothers kind of thing, and probably you'll hear a lot of bad albums this way, but maybe you'll find some gems. Who knows? Our discography club, we nominate artists, and then when one discography is complete, we vote for the next, and on it goes. And over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've journeyed through all 12 studio albums from the sort of legendary thrash metal band called Slayer. Now, I'd never heard a Slayer record top to bottom myself, so I says to myself, I says, This should be educational, you know, in my pop culture vernacular. Mostly, uh, here's a spoiler, everyone found Slayer repetitive and exhausting, except for Levi, who mostly enjoyed it. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about the band called Slater, I did it, I did it. Did you hear that? It's a Freudian slip. It should be called Slater. I'd listen to it. If Mario Lopez made a record, I'd listen to it. If you happen to know anything about this band at all, it's probably their very specific and very consistent uh, aesthetic. They have a theme, and they really stuck with it through the years. They sort of formed in the early 80s in Southern California, and the story goes that Slayer sort of set out to rebel against what was the trendy kind of glam metal bands like Motley Crue that were um, proliferating in their area. So they embraced, Slayer that is, overtly kind of violent quasi-satanic imagery and lyrical themes rather than, you know, mascara and leather chaps. And the second Slayer album is called Hell Awaits. It has lyrics like this, the reaper guards the darkened gates that Satan calls his home. Demons feed the furnace where the dead are free to roam. And I thought, listening to that, you know, one, it sounds like a middle schooler wrote it. And then two, (laughs) I thought, is that 
is that what awaits in hell, wherever or whatever they think hell is? And then I thought, you know, thrash metal aesthetics aside, why are flaming dungeons and hooved goat monsters part and parcel of hell's visual representation in pop culture? Jesus said things like, it's better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. When he said that, was he referring to some fiery dungeon furnished with craggy stone formations and oozing lava pits prowled by horned imps in red pajamas, forever soundtracked by the wailing souls of, you know, in agony and Slayer records, presumably? You can find places like that in Renaissance paintings or in Gustave Doré's etchings and engravings to illustrate the Divine Comedy or in Dungeons and Dragons. But not so much in the Bible. In fact, the pop culture imagination has more specific things to say about hell than the Bible does. And so it paints its picture using mostly medieval art and Dante's Inferno rather than the scriptures. But really, the religious imagination, or I would argue just the human imagination, has always been fascinated with whatever happens after all of this, the afterlife, heaven, hell, the future, whatever it is, what is it? Why has hell so often been depicted like this? Or why, for that matter, has heaven so often been depicted like this? Debate as to the exact details, the nature of the future, has so colored Christian doctrinal discourse that heaven and hell have been at times most cherished in the evangelistic tool belt to proselytize the lost. Just this week, I saw an ad that played before a YouTube video, of all things, and it posed something I hadn't heard in a long time, the once-ever-present evangelical question of my youth group heyday. If you died tonight, where would you go? And I thought, I don't know, a morgue? You know? And they're like, no, not like that, like your soul, man. Where would it go? In this way, heaven and hell become the great bottom lines in certain traditions of Christianity. Why raise your hand to say a magical prayer incantation and invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior? Well, you do it to guarantee the reward of heaven and avoid the torment of hell, which are really high stakes. But even if there's something off about that whole formula, we can't escape the fact that the scriptures do depict something beyond all this. Life after death or life after life after death. And the future has been, was, and is one important aspect of the teachings of Jesus. Open your Bibles to the book we call Revelation chapter 21. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you're new to the scriptures, feel free to consult the table of contents. For the last few weeks, we've been making our way through what will eventually become our church's doctrinal statement and how that statement of what we believe becomes something called our church rule of life. It's sort of a way that we organize and discipline ourselves to live out the things that we believe on a day-to-day -day basis. What we believe and what we do because we believe it. What you believe about the future inevitably shapes what you do in the present. Now, as the pastor of teaching and creative vision, most of my work week is organized with Sunday evening in mind. 
That is, I utilize my time in the present, day-to-day in my office back there, with the future in mind. Or, I, you know, I don't attempt to preserve the cosmetic perfection of a paper plate when I eat from it because I know that it's going in the trash, so it doesn't matter. I make decisions about what matters and what doesn't based on what I believe will happen in the future. Before my family leaves for vacation, we clean our house extraordinarily well because we know how wonderful it feels to come home to a house in want of nothing. It's beautiful. And then you kind of forget and you open the door and you're like, wow, who did this? We did. Wow, it's amazing. All of us in ways big and small live into our assumptions about the future. You get on the plane not because you believe it will crash, but because you believe it will land. And the story of God in the scriptures encompasses the past, the present, and something called the age to come. The story, part of which concludes in Revelation, where we'll touch down in just a moment, goes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. Very long time ago, God, the great original artist, organizes disordered chaos into an ordered universe. And he crafts humanity in his image that they might share in his collaborative rule and reign over the good world he created, that together they might realize the raw potential of a world brimming with creative possibility. Humanity, however, is uninterested in God's reign, ultimately. They rebel against the king, and instead they pursue their own kingdom on their own terms. You know the story, death, suffering, evil, chaos, violence, oppression, still part of our day-to-day life in the world today. The whole thing falls into immediate disrepair. It's a disaster. But God is unwilling to abandon his kingdom project. So he chooses a man, Abram, later called Abraham, and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, which become the people called Israel, to join him in beginning the kingdom project anew through the people of Israel. But Israel, like the first human, fails. So God enters the project himself in Jesus of Nazareth, a human being, and succeeds where the other humans failed, where Adam and Eve and Israel, as well as you and I, have all failed, and God's kingdom is inaugurated once again. The mission to spread the kingdom to the world continues in something called the church, that's us, you and I, but of course, this part of the story also has a conclusion. So, let's look at Revelation. Now, a bit of a background On Revelation, the book that we call Revelation was authored by one of Jesus' disciples called John. He was exiled to an island called Patmos, and John is writing to a small community of persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. To this oppressed band of disciples, the world itself was big and evil, and they felt as if they had been left to face it all alone. Now remember, at this time in the first century, Christianity was not some kind of politicized global superpower. It began as a subversive grassroots alternative society as it slowly proliferated across dinner tables throughout the empire. But the Christian movement had fallen under persecution. And John, in exile, wants to somehow encourage his brothers and sisters to stay the course, even though it's becoming quite scary to do so. Don't give up. Things are bad, yes, but Jesus is still who he said he was. All of this is going somewhere. And on this island, 
John experiences this incredible vision about the persecution the church was facing at that time. And then he gets a bit about the ultimate fate of the entire cosmos. And it's incredible because in John's vision and in his letter, he reaches all the way back into the story of Genesis and he recognizes in all the world's evil and suffering and death in the persecution looming over this discouraged rabble of Christians, the evil in all of it is that same snake who whispered to the first humans in the garden, don't trust God, he's a liar. The snake, the devil, the Satan. For John, this little church in Asia Minor has been woven into a cosmic spiritual battle as old as the universe itself. So, to these shivering disciples of Jesus comes a letter of revelation, or technically the word is an apocalypse, which means to uncover or reveal, hence revelation. The great reveal is this. Jesus will triumph over evil and death, and his faithful, broken and imperfect though they may be, saved rabble of followers will be with him forever. So, with all that in mind, let's look down at Revelation 21, where Jesus' ultimate victory comes to fruition. You guys all right? You still with me? Would you guys mind standing together as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of the inspired and authoritative Word of God? Revelation 21, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Remember, sea is an ancient uh, Hebrew symbol for chaos and evil. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then skip down to verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, look over at the following chapter beginning in uh, 22 verse 3. No longer will there be any curse The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve them. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. These words are inspired by God. 
Thank you guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, obviously, this is highly symbolic, poetic, beautiful, apocalyptic literature, a ancient genre for which we have no modern equivalent. But the final two chapters of the Bible speak beautifully about the future, a world restored to the goodness of the garden, hope and potential restored without the poison of death. Humanity reigns with God and in God's loving presence forever, and evil and suffering and death itself are no more. And remember... Revelation isn't some kind of strange curveball. The idea of ultimate recreation shows up throughout the Bible story. Now, do me a favor and turn to the left in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Again, feel free to consult the table of contents. Isaiah 65. At this point in the story where we're about to read, the nation of Israel has been sent into exile from their home. Their sin became so great that the big bad nation of Babylon comes in, invades them, and they're driven from their home. And into that hopeless lull, the prophet talks about a coming king and a coming kingdom, bigger and better than anyone dared to hope. Look at Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. There's that language again. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Skip down to verse 23. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord." And look, this motif, this idea of new creation carries on through the New Testament authors in 2 Peter. But in keeping with the promise, his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Or speaking of Jesus' return to his father, Luke writes in Acts, heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore what? Oh, it's not up there. Wow, sorry. I really put you guys... Who's memorized it? (laughs) Sorry. Everything. There it is. For the time come to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Not a new idea. An ongoing promise echoing out throughout the Bible story. But here's the thing. Even though this vision of new creation is the climactic conclusion of the last book of the Bible... Most of the book of Revelation doesn't really talk about the future that much at all. Most of Revelation was and is about something that already happened in the first century, written to persecuted Christians then and there, and again, an ancient genre of literature for which we have no modern equivalent. It's not specifically and explicitly about here and now, nor is it specifically and explicitly about or for us. But... That does not mean that the letter is somehow useless to us. What Revelation does offer, apart from all the incredible and bizarre heavy metal imagery, is a glimpse into God's purposes throughout history, his plans for the ultimate future, and his intentions for you and me and all of creation. In other words, where all of this is going. 
And maybe, surprisingly for some of us, Revelation does not include some scene in which God's people are suddenly transported out of this world to then carry on a spiritual existence in a cloudy paradise elsewhere forever. If you don't believe me, read it, and you'll see. That is a very, I would argue, modern conception of the future and life after death. The Bible, I would argue, tells a very different story, and it is one that uh, scholar N.T. Wright describes as life after life after death. What we often think of as heaven is not the end of the story. Our world made new, and us living in it in resurrected physical bodies is the end of the story. On the misunderstanding of an escape to a soul heaven, Craig Bartholomew comments this, John's depiction of salvation is not one of escape from earth into a spiritualized heaven where humans should dwell forever. Instead, John is shown by you know, the, the vision he gets and shows us in turn that salvation is the restoration of God's creation on a new earth. In this restored world, the redeemed of God will live in resurrected bodies within a renewed creation from which sin and its effects have been expunged. This is the kingdom that Christ's followers have already begun to enjoy in foretaste. Now, to put it bluntly, thinking of humanity's role in creation as one of ultimate escape up to a cloud heaven kind of renders the Bible's narrative nonsensical. Because if our hope and future is to go somewhere else, then the Bible is no longer a unique interpretation of universal history and the world. And then consequently, it no longer has much to say about humanity's active involvement in the world right now, other than to sort of raise your hand and get your soul saved so you can go somewhere else one day. Now, obviously, there is an inordinate amount of debate and disagreement surrounding the exact timing and sequence and specifics of whatever the heck happens when Jesus comes back. But all historic Orthodox disciples of Jesus agree on the following four elements. Jesus returns, resurrection, judgment, and new creation. So first, as promised, Jesus, the snake-crushing king, will come back. And then every human being that has died will be resurrected from the dead. Next, embrace yourself for this one, Jesus will judge the world. In the language of the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that will be wonderful for some and horrifying for others. And I get it, Jesus as sort of divine judge doesn't always sit comfortably with us, myself included. But he actually went on and on about it. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Yikes. Gosh, that one's the worst. Or this one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles that I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Or this one from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. 
The idea is that the sheep, representative of Jesus' faithful, albeit imperfect followers, will be with him in what, we, what Revelation calls the new heaven and the new earth. And the goats, representative of those who of their own settled volition reject the love of Jesus, will go to what the Bible most often calls destruction. Okay, I realize a uh, can of worms is now open with all the heaven and hell talk. So before we go further, let's do some theology work with heaven and hell. Stay with me for the next few minutes. We're going to venture into the theological weeds just a bit, but I think it'll help us make sense of where we're landing tonight. You guys all right? You still with me? Thanks very much. Now again, lots of debate and disagreement over the most biblically consistent understanding of the future, and in particular over the nature of heaven and hell. So let's get hell out of the way first, starting with the Hebrew scriptures. What does the Old Testament say about hell? Nothing, really. The Old Testament doesn't mention hell the way it's understood in the New Testament or in traditional Christian doctrine, but it does mention again and again and again future consequences for those who reject the love of God. Then, when you get to the New Testament, the concept that we describe now as hell is described several different ways. Now, I use that language, the concept we describe as hell, because the word hell, in the pure sense, isn't really there. Instead, you get Hades, which is a word that kind of describes the realm of the dead, if you like, or most often Gehenna. Gehenna is an actual physical place. It's called the uh, Valley of Ben-Hinnom. I've been there. It was a place where horrific child sacrifices were carried out, and then much later where garbage was burned and where lepers and outcasts were sent far from the community. Thus, in the Jewish tradition, Gehenna, a real, again, physical place with which everyone would have been familiar, became both a literal and a figurative symbol of burning and evil and wickedness and being cast out of God's presence. So it was like hell is like Gehenna, and they would be, oh man, that place is the worst. So Jesus picked up on this rabbinic tradition of Gehenna as symbolism, and he used it to describe the ultimate destiny for those who reject the love and salvation of God. Now Gehenna is mentioned more than a dozen times throughout the New Testament. Many of those mentions, our Bibles just translate the word not as Gehenna, but as hell. And most of the hell language that the New Testament authors use to describe the fate of the unrepentant suggests a kind of finality. For example, the word destruction or perish shows up all throughout the New Testament in Matthew and John, Acts, Romans, Philippians, Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Hebrews, 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, the word death which shows up again throughout, all throughout the New Testament in a number of different places. The word end, which shows up in a few spots as well. And then finally, the words disintegration or corruption, which show up in a couple of places too. Now, there are also several word pictures that suggest something conclusive or something final, like the destiny of those who are unsaved are descri is described as being burned up like chaff or trees or weeds or branches. It's described as a destroyed house or a discarded fish or an uprooted plant or a chopped down tree. Or the day of judgment is compared to Old Testament examples of something like the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. If you're not familiar with the story, go read it. It's pretty fascinating. 
Um, the unrepentant are compared to ground up powder or as being cut up to pieces. These are just a few examples. And this kind of uh, conclusive sounding language of something being destroyed or ruined or dead dominates the New Testament descriptions of what we call hell. Then there are at least two or three passages about the fate of the unrepentant that seem to suggest something that's conscious or uh, a conscious or everlasting state of suffering. The strongest is arguably, I think, in Matthew 25, 46, in which Jesus says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It's not explicit, but there seems to be, or at least you could argue that there seems to be a, a, a symmetry between those, that connection, eternal life, eternal punishment. And there are two in Revelation. The first is in chapter 14. The language is they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And then it says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest uh, day or night. And then the second is in chapter 20, which says the devil and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But I should also mention that just a few lines later in that same chapter, the lake of fire is also called the second death. So even if it's sort of combined with finality language, and either way, uh, you know, Revelation is, of course, like I've said several times at this point, highly symbolic, apocalyptic literature. It's an ancient genre, and we don't really have it around anymore. But because the New Testament describes the fate of those who insist on rejecting salvation with different words and images and pictures, there are several theological conceptions of hell. One is often called the traditionalist view, and it is also something called eternal conscious torment, or ECT, if you don't want to say that horrible sounding thing again and again and again. And it's exactly what it sounds like. In this understanding, hell is an everlasting consequence of spurning the saving love of God for which the rejecting party is fully conscious and in utter agony for all of eternity. But even then, there's debate in that perspective. Is eternal conscious torment an actual fiery torture chamber? Or is it more like the existential agony of being eternally separated from God? Who knows? Other scholars and theologians, ancient and modern, argue for something called conditional mortality or annihilationism, which is one of the coolest sounding theological perspectives ever. And they interpret the many, many texts suggesting finality to mean that those who freely choose to reject the love of God will be raised with everyone, judged with everyone, consciously suffer the consequences of sin as a punishment apart from salvation for some finite period, but then they will eventually be destroyed forever and cease to exist. This too is an everlasting consequence, or you could describe it as an everlasting punishment. And again, there's debate within that perspective. How long does one suffer? When are they destroyed? These are not the only two theological paradigms, but there's obviously a lot more to both views than we have time for tonight. Now, I did not bring either of those up to make you choose one view or another. I bring those up to point out where the church has made room for debate about the future and where the church has agreed. The agreement is this. If you hear nothing else, hear this part. Sin has natural, inevitable consequences, temporal consequences in this age, and everlasting consequences in the age to come. Those who freely reject the saving love of God will experience the consequence of hell in the age to come. 
Now, where there's debate and multiple different theological positions is on the exact nature and duration of hell. Now, hang in there. We're almost done. Now, heaven. How's that? <laughs> what a confusing word. In the Bible, heaven is sometimes simply the sky, which we also use the word in English the same way. Ah, oh, the heavens. Or it's a surrogate word for God himself, as in Matthew's the kingdom of heaven. In other places, heaven is just where God is or God's dimension, God's space. And again, in the New Testament, heaven is accessible to God's people in the here and now, which is why Jesus teaches his, his disciples to pray, as we did at the beginning of this gathering, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So while it's true that those who are in Jesus or who, are, who have been saved and then have died, they are, to use the Bible's language, absent from the body but present with God in some sense. This is something that in theology we call the intermediate state. The Bible does not depict the intermediate state as the ultimate destination of those who are, in the Bible's language, asleep. And the destination of the saved is not some other dimension with clouds and chubby babies with harps. Think back to what we just read in Revelation. You may have noticed there's no nation of disembodied spirits exiled to some space somewhere else. It's very tactile, earthly, bodily, the new city coming down to earth, us in bodies. We are not going somewhere else forever. That, I would argue, is a worldview with roots in Platonic Greek philosophy, not in the Bible. In the scriptures, heaven is not about escaping to the clouds, but about new creation healed from its bondage to death, a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation concludes with heaven coming down to earth in a world made new and us with God once and for all. And both heaven and hell are inextricably linked to judgment. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. In Hebrew thinking, judgment was more than the kind of simple courtroom drama that dominates much of our default presuppositions about that word. In the ancient Jewish imagination, judgment was the restoration of shalom, meaning goodness and wholeness and peace and completion, things as God intended them to be. In the Hebrew mind, judgment is closer to our word justice. And destruction is more than just punishment. It is the eradication of evil and unrepentant evildoers from God's healed world. And the cosmos itself, the world, the universe, will not be destroyed and made new from scratch. It will be restored. God, the good original artist, made it good, and he will restore its goodness. And that's an important distinction as it implies a certain amount of continuity and familiarity of the good world that we know now and the age to come, rather than some kind of incomprehensible world of clouds and harps and cherubs and endless hymns all day long. Human beings were meant to enjoy God in the full and good context of life within God's creation. When God set out to deal with sin and its ruinous consequences, he set out to destroy the enemy of creation, not creation itself. Creation will be redeemed. And this restoration and redemption of the cosmos will be comprehensive in scale. The whole of humanity and earth will be purged of evil and suffering and death. Every wrong will be undone in the context of humanity, the physical and spiritual realms, the environment, the animal kingdom, everything. A comprehensive redemption reminds us 
of the story in which we find ourselves tonight. The broadness of it. The scope of it. Often, many of us tend to lapse into a sort of individualistic understanding of salvation. Apart from the full creational and relational context in which we are created to live. And in that individualistic paradigm, we sort of resort to the biblical story and the way we relate to, we relate to Jesus revolving around me. Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus in heaven someday. And yet, God intends to save and restore not me only, but creation itself. A comprehensive redemption also implies that human culture and development and work will carry on to some degree in the age to come, that we will be loosed to continue our original decree to work and steward and develop the world as God saw fit, but now finally released from the bondage of sin forever. Now again, for tonight's purposes, we're obviously painting with very broad strokes. So if you're interested in learning more, there's a few book recommendations for you on hell. If you're interested, you can take a picture of this slide if you're going to forget. Um, the Fire That Consumes by a guy whose name is, I kid you not, Edward William Fudge. Yeah. And side note, you can also find a, about an hour-long lecture from Edward Fudge summarizing his thesis on hell on YouTube. He's this charming old man with a southern accent and a bow tie. I recommend that as well. Very entertaining and very well put if you don't have time for the giant book. Or um, a simple exploration of multiple orthodox viewpoints on hell. You can check out Zondervan's uh, Four Views series. They have a book, Four Views on Hell. Several theologians contributing, explaining, and arguing with each other's viewpoints. And then on heaven and the age to come, easily the book that has been most formative for our church's leadership is N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope. Now, to end, what do heaven and hell have to do with tonight and our church and being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing the kinds of things that Jesus did? The answer is this. What you believe about the future inevitably shapes what you do in the present. I'm not talking about living in constant fear of the possibility of hell or in constant longing for some escape to heaven. I'm talking about living into the person God has created you to be. At Van City, we believe in the historic Christian understanding of heaven and hell, that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. But we also believe this is mu about much more than our ultimate destination. It is about now as much as it is about later. In theology speak, hell is often described with punishment language. And that's not all wrong, but I find it more fitting to use the language of consequences. In one of Paul's most famous quotes, he summarizes tonight's teaching, really, thusly, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. Sin, which is a word that I realize is kind of clouded up with churchy understanding. It's a word that quite simply means to fail or to miss the mark of God's ideal intended purpose. Sin pays out death. That is the natural, inevitable consequence of when humanity attempts to define what is best for themselves and others apart from God. Death is not God's petty, vindictive retribution on those who don't follow his rules. It is the natural, inevitable 
conclusion and consequence of choosing to reject the author of life. And notice, Paul does not go on to say that eternal life is the wage of righteousness. It's the oldest, most beautiful salvation adage that we have in church vernacular. It is a gift. A life of discipleship to Jesus is anything but a passive sit back and wait for the reward experience. Like any journey of an apprentice training under a master requires total commitment, unwavering faithfulness, blood, sweat, tears. It requires all of you. But all of our effort and all of our faithfulness, the self-denial, the self-sacrificial love, it is our response to the gift of God through Jesus. I love my wife, and my wife loves me. And when we got married, we didn't just conclude a ceremony and then go our separate ways. We entered into all the messy complications, the beauty and difficulty and hard work of a shared life. I don't persist in all the challenges of family because I'm afraid that I'll be punished at some point in the future if I don't. And I don't work hard to love my family well because I think there's one big reward coming someday later. I persist in the ongoing drama of domestic life because of love. And I believe that when I choose to live in love with all my messiness and failure day in and day out, all my imperfections and stumbling and falling and getting up and going forward, when I choose to live in love, I am becoming more and more a person of love. Advanced City we believe with Jesus and the apostles and the early Christians and 2,000 years of church history in a story that extends beyond the inevitability of death. We believe in heaven and hell and salvation and damnation. And we believe that discipleship to Jesus is about right now as much as it is about the age to come. And people often wonder if resurrected disciples of Jesus will have the same autonomy or free will that we do this side of resurrection. And some theologians argue, and I would agree, that what we call libertarian freedom, which is the ability to choose this way or that way, becomes compatibilist freedom over time, which is just a, a, a wordy way of saying that on the timeline of your life, early on, you have the free will to always do other than you do. You are truly free. But the more choices you make, for better or for worse, and the more that you are solidified in those choices, the more narrow your spectrum of freedom becomes. And the older you get, the harder it becomes to do other than you do without serious, often painful, healing and transformative work. Now think for a moment about uh, the oldest people that you know. Doesn't it seem that many of them fit neatly within two categories? They're either bitty, bitter and petty and cantankerous, mean-spirited, up in arms about small, trivial things, glued to the 24-hour news cycle and paranoid about the government, whatever, or they're warm and kind and generous and gentle because we are being solidified in the decisions that we make. And these decisions are carrying us into the next season of life with God. In ways big and small, in decisions monumental or seemingly insignificant, we are being shaped over time. And the ways you choose to organize your time 
Contributing are the ways that you choose to organize your time. Contributing to the process of you being formed into a person more made over into the image of Jesus or less so. This is why we practice the way of Jesus. This is what a rule of life is all about. Rhythms of love, habits of love, choosing to prioritize the small, consistent, disciplined routines that bring us closer to God. Things like prayer and the scriptures, choosing to come to a community week in and week out, even when you don't feel like it, choosing to be here in this room with your brothers and sisters week in and week out, even if you have something that you think is better to do because you realize it is changing you over time. All of it is contributing to the person you are becoming. Tomorrow morning, how will you live into the future? The next week, the next year of your life as a friend, as a spouse, as a mother or a father. Because there will come a day when we will be solidified in our decisions, freely made as a people of love or a people unwilling to love at judgment. And the presentations of both heaven and hell that many of us have known have been decorated with either a sales pitch or a death threat. Get saved so you can go to heaven. Get saved so you won't burn in hell. And yes, you know, make no mistake, Jesus was very clear about judgment. Repent, he famously said. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. God is here. He is available to you now. The kingdom is here and it's coming. We're saved by Jesus who is transforming us by his spirit to enjoy life to the fullest. And on a day in the future beyond the pale of death, we will be raised with him to life everlasting once and for all. And we in the here and now and in the age to come denounce hell, not for fear of punishment, but in defiance of sin and suffering and injustice and evil and death. And we say together, the long history of Jesus' disciples then and now and into the future. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray and ask the Spirit to continue to form us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.